0: From Washington, D.C., and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. New Thrift Savings Plan automatic contributions are in place for employees joining the federal government. A bulletin from the Agriculture Department's National Finance Center tells agencies to remind new hires they'll automatically contribute 5% to their TSP accounts when they join the government. GovExec reports the NFC Bulletin explains how new employees can manually change their contributions or opt out of the TSP. A new software buying policy in the Defense Department will include a special pathway leaders hope will speed up acquisition. Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment Ellen Lord says the current system is, quote, an impediment to delivering capability. Fedscoop reports the office of the principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for acquisition enablers will be the lead office for contracting officers and policy officials the vice commandant of the marine corps is the latest senior military leader to test positive for the coronavirus general gary thomas was uh, present at a meeting at the pentagon last friday with coast guard vice commandant charles ray ray is positive for covid too The Marine Corps says Thomas is experiencing, quote, mild symptoms. The Space Force says it will set up the Space Systems Command sometime in 2021. It won't incorporate the Space Development Agency into that command until late 2022. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Todd it's good to see you. What's the sen- what's your sense of how acquisition is standing up inside the Space Force?
1: Well, it's slow but steady, you know, because the Space Force as we've discussed before, it's it's not, you know, as if you're creating a brand new service out of nothing you're really reorganizing a bunch of existing organizations that already existed. And so, you know, that's what is going on here in trying to stand up the Space Systems Command is they're transferring over acquisition organizations that already exist. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of like trying to, to upgrade a car while it's in motion. Uh, and so that's what they're doing slowly but steady. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing little bits and pieces roll out over time. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's important to get it right the first time, because once you move these organizations, once you create a new bureaucratic structure, it's going to be very difficult to go back and change that in the future.
0: Yeah, I'm detecting some uh, impatience in the community for the Space Force getting this done. But I think back to the Department of Homeland Security, that's been uh, eight, 17, 18 years, and it's still not, completely settled. And I wonder if we're just being way too impatient when it comes to the Space Force.
1: Well, I think there is a lot of impatience. If you think back to why we got a Space Force to begin with, uh, one of the main reasons uh, is a perceived lack of speed uh, and lack of innovation in space acquisitions. And you know, that's one of the things that policymakers wanted to improve by reorganizing to put all of these different space acquisition organizations under one unified chain of command. Uh, So there is a bit of impatience, especially on the Hill and in industry, uh, to see that happen so that they can start moving out and move out in a new direction. Uh, But that is a slow and delicate process and it is upsetting, you know, a lot of different bureaucracies and bureaucratic interests within the building.
0: Reform is probably not the right word for this. Restructuring or reshaping is probably more accurate. Is there something that we can learn from the restructuring and reshaping inside OSD over the last five or six, ten years uh, that might help us understand what could come or what should come inside the Space Force, Todd?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the first thing that we've learned through many different types of restructuring Uh, Within government, specifically within the military, is that adding more process, adding more layers of bureaucracy, is not going to help you. Uh, And I think that the Space Force is very cognizant of that, and they have been trying to remove levels of bureaucracy. uh, You know, rather than adding more and more on top of what already exists. Um, But you know, it is it is one of those things where you know you've got to recognize that you get really one shot at this. You get one bite at the apple. If you don't get it right the first time, you're going to be stuck with the consequences for probably a generation.
0: What's the implication of that concept then for the way that people should go about thinking of the structuring of the Space Force, uh, given the prospect that we might have a transition of administrations and therefore a transition of civilian leadership within the next three to six months?
1: well if there is a change in administration then the one thing we can be sure of is major decisions major restructuring decisions are going to be put on hold because the new team coming in is going to want to review those decisions so if a decision hasn't been made by now um even if it is made uh in the next you know few weeks or months the new team coming in is want, going to want to take another look at that uh and and you know consider how do they want to structure this going forward i think one of the big issues that the next presidential term, whether it's a Biden administration or a Trump administration, one of the big issues they're gonna to have to deal with in space acquisitions is you know, the fact that we've got two different parallel tracks going on right now. We've got one track of acquisitions where we're buying the next generation you know, of existing systems, incremental improvements on what we already have. And then we've got another track of acquisitions going on, really led by the Space Development Agency, where they're trying to buy brand new types of systems, brand new types of capabilities that we don't currently have. Uh, And so, you know, can those efforts continue in parallel? They sure can. It's just going to cost more money. Uh, If you're not willing to put uh, the additional resources towards it, then you're going to have to make a choice at some point. Do we transition over from legacy architectures in space, legacy systems to the new systems? Uh, Or, you know, do we continue just building incremental improvements into the things we already have?
0: We just have a couple of minutes left, Todd, but is it a little troubling about the fact that we're talking already about transitioning potentially from legacy systems to new innovative systems and the Space Force isn't really even fully stood up yet?
1: Well, you know, that's part of the impatience here is that it's not just policymakers that are impatient. We see our adversaries and the threats to our space systems continuing to improve. Uh, And so there is that pressure from the threats that we see. Uh, going on and then there's also there's the pressure from commercial industry quite frankly that there are a lot of new commercial space capabilities coming online that could be very useful to the military that could enable brand new military missions in space things that we don't do in space uh, today and you know there's there is uh, some impatience in parts of the military to try to take advantage of these systems.
0: Todd Harrison thanks very much great to have you.
1: Thank you good to be back.
0: Up next, agency operations in the age of coronavirus and the common cold. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how flu season could change how government runs this year. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Some agencies are already welcoming employees back to offices despite the coronavirus, but the flu could send people back to their home offices later in the fall. Chief Information Officers should be looking at how to prepare for a combination of the flu and COVID, according to Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, US Air Force retired, he's president of Appgate Federal Group and former federal chief information security officer. Greg, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming back. What is this collision of coronavirus and the flu look like in your view? What are the worries that should be on the minds of technology professionals across government?
2: Well, I think right now it's really important for CIOs, CISOs, and agency heads to be thinking about what happens if we do in fact have a collision between coronavirus as well as the flu season that could potentially disable portions or uh, large swaths of the workforce. So making sure that you have a plan that addresses the fact that you may have casualties in your ranks uh, due to infection is something that we need to really revisit and take a look and make sure that are we prepared for the worst. And things that I would recommend that agency heads and the CIOs look at, first of all, what if we have casualties? Uh, How do we make sure that critical functions are, are maintained, even if all the folks that we have doing them, are out because they're sick or disabled? How do we get mutual support from somebody else in the event that our resources are depleted? Can we go to another department or agency? Can we contract that out? And and should we have, in fact, an exercise to make sure that we can do that? Can we cross-train other individuals to accomplish those tasks? How do I make sure that my employees have the best information on public health making sure they get their flu vaccines all of these things need to be part of that conversation
0: is this different and if so how is it different either tactically or strategically or both from your run-of-the-mill coop operations uh, planning
2: i think it supplements the coop planning and you should already have a lot of this uh, ready to go Uh, but now's the time before the, the main flu season hits, that you should be reviewing the worst case scenarios and making sure that your plans are executable, that your employees understand what the plans are, and that you're making sure that uh, if I have this situation that the roles and responsibilities are well spelled out and that you know what your options are ahead of time.
0: We talk about risk management a lot on this program and it's been a big source of conversation in government for the last five or 10 years. But we've been doing risk management in our own brains forever, for as long as we've been alive. And I think most people's risk management approach toward this problem might be as simple as, "Eh, it's probably not going to be that bad. Why is that a bad strategy, Greg?
2: Well, you know, frankly, the military taught me a long time ago that you plan for the worst but hope for the best. And right now is the time where you should be planning for the worst uh, so that you're ready to mitigate those risks and uh, fight through whatever problems you have. Uh, And as we've seen uh, with uh, previous examples of infectious disease and, and the like, you really can't predict what the rates are going to be. So You have to prepare. For the worst and making sure that you have a plan is the first step in managing risk and making sure that you understand what your options are and that your options are feasible acceptable and suitable and of course affordable to the situation at hand so making sure that you are ready and you have that plan and start practicing is an important part of preparedness.
0: So you're on the edge of where I think I wanted to go next, which is you listed some of the things strategically that uh, are very wise for people to be thinking about, especially CIOs and CISOs. Tactically, what should those people be doing now?
2: Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'd be communicating with my troops. Uh, I'd be talking with my employees and sharing not only best practices as far as what they can do, but sharing information like uh, best practices in public health. That's sometimes uh, outside of the CIO and the uh, CISO sweet spot. So I bring in experts in uh, public health to help remind my employees, my colleagues, my teammates on what things that they should be doing. I I would also be communicating with them what their roles are in the contingency plans that we may have to exercise if, in fact, the the flu season rolls in and turns out to be particularly bad. So I'd be very transparent. I'd communicate, communicate, and communicate. I'd make sure that we have continuity folders, that we have cross-training. And I would also be talking with my third-party service providers to make sure that they, in fact, are resilient and are prepared for a really bad flu season on top of the COVID so that if I have a third-party vendor that's critical to my mission, that I have reasonable assurances that they're well-prepared as well.
0: Strikes me one of, the most, uh, one of the biggest potential problems here is the ongoing conversation that I see about remote work fatigue, COVID fatigue, where people are just kind of tired of the whole thing, and uh, that seems to me to be a potential vulnerability too. Is that reasonable to think?
2: I think so and you know having done several combat deployments where I disappear from my family for months and years at a time you know that that fatigue factor is something that we plan for in the military and we take active measures to address and not only fatigue for the member of the military but also the families as well so from a leadership perspective it's really important that agency heads and leaders at all level Um, are continually re-energizing the workforce and communicating with them the importance of why we are doing things a certain way and and making sure that they have the right information to make the best decisions. Um, And, and, you know, frankly, part of my talk track with my employees is maintaining wellness. You know, uh, the best way, I think, to uh, burn through the fatigue is to make sure that you are talking about wellness and you're demonstrating it yourself encourage folks to get their exercise sleep well eat well um, and, and do the right things
0: greg Tohill, great to see you again thanks for your time today
2: great to see you too thank you francis
0: up next manufacturing human organs in a machine is it a sci-fi novel or the future of 3d printing straight ahead on government matters technological innovations on the horizon for veterans don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. 3-D printed body parts are closer to reality than ever before. The Veterans Health Administration's teamed up with the University of Washington School of Medicine to find new ways to use 3-D printing technology to help veterans. Dr. Beth Ripley is chair of the Veterans Health Administration 3-D Printing Advisory Committee at the VA. Uh, Beth, Dr. Ripley, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program. Last time you were on, we talked about the consultory ways that you and your colleagues are using 3-D printed body parts. What's the next generation? What's the next step beyond that? For the vets that you're working with?
3: So that's a great question. We start with that consultation piece, and, and really that is about showing the veteran, showing the patient exactly what's going on, what the problem is, let's say with their heart, um, and giving them the opportunity to really be engaged and in control of their health and the decision about it. But it only starts there. So where it could go next is um, a few places. One, one thing that we're really interested and in, excited about is that one of those models could then actually go home with the veteran and when their family member says what did the doctor say and, you know that's the moment when we're always like oh man what did they say I don't quite remember. Well they could just pull out the model and we could have written on there exactly this is where we're gonna cut this is where we're gonna go this is what we're gonna replace. So it can go with the, the veteran home um, and continue that relationship of of being able to communicate. But the other place it's going to go, and especially within the cardiac space, is now it's gonna go into the lab and we can look at the ways that different heart valves or different replacements and repairs will interact with that patient's anatomy before you ever go into the operating room. So we can get that perfect bespoke fit for the veteran before they ever walk into the operating room.
0: yeah. You know, one of the things that I've learned in the reading I've done since you've been on the program the last time is that, number one, everything, as you say, is customized to the individual patient. And number two, I had this image in my mind that 3D printing resulted in just basically plastic pieces, and the textures and, and nuances of the individual pieces that, y- that you can make are pretty much limitless, aren't they?
3: Absolutely, there are thousands upon thousands of materials that you can print with and you know, it's growing every day. So tomorrow is gonna be 20 more. And we're very interested in trying to mimic the material properties of the body. Because again, it's not just the shape, it's the way that your body reacts to different things. And so in the heart, you've got, um, you know, squishy parts, you've got uh, stretchy vessels, and a lot of patients have a lot of hard calcifications in the heart, too. And we really want to be able to mimic all of that so that we know exactly how these new parts, let's say a new valve, fit in there. And that's something that's so complex that it, it will be really hard to model that with a computer, even with AI. Um, and so sometimes just holding your hand is the best way.
0: What are the intersections, though, of some of those cutting edge technologies that you mentioned, that, like um, uh, artificial intelligence and so on, with what you're doing with 3D printing? What does that mean for the future of the technologies that you're working with, Dr. Ripley?
3: It's all interconnected. So AI is going to help us um, be able to segment or you know extract the data better Um What we find when we test with models, we can feed back in um, as data into algorithms to try to understand, you know, to a point where maybe we don't need to print. Um, And also, I think, you know, just trying to understand disease better. You know, know, it's in the news right now all the time when we're thinking about new treatments, new medications, et cetera, and and we're trying to test it and see how it's gonna work in the population. Um, If you can, really nail down all of the diversity of the population and you have access to all of the data um, of a of, uh, l- much larger population and AI, we can get better at really understanding how some of these new devices or treatments will interact across a broader population, and hopefully in the future we'll do it faster and safer.
0: We so, have just not a, yet, but we'll get there. We'll, and we just have a couple of minutes left, and that's where I wanted to finish, is the stuff that you're talking about now, um, you've told me before, is stuff that you were thinking about three, five years ago and longer. What are you thinking about today that you can't do yet, but that you anticipate being able to do a couple of years out?
3: Oh, we're very interested in printing organs that actually go into the body. Um, So we've been talking about models that help us know what we're gonna see when we get into the operating room. The next generation is models, not models actually, but parts that are going to go into the patient. And we're actively working on bone, being able to print living bone, vascularized bone. Um, And what you could do is print that in the exact shape that you need to fill a defect. And we're hoping that in the next two years, you're going to see that in VA, in patients. So stay tuned on that.
0: Pretty amazing stuff, Uh, Dr. Beth Ripley. Congratulations on your service to America Medal, and thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back.
3: Thank you so much.
0: If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and eleven on WJLA twenty four seven News, and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on ABC seven. We stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
1: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon.